Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and there was a lot that happened in sports last week. We're going to dive right into everything today, starting with college basketball. As always, the Elite Eight this weekend was fantastic. All four games were great. I'm going to be joined today by Patrick Schmidt of Fansai, the college sports editor there. We talked to him a couple weeks ago before the conference tournaments. He's back right now. We're going to recap the Elite Eight, set out the Final Four, make some picks, who's going to win the national championship. All that coming up later in the show. Also, both of our correspondents are with us today. Our legal correspondent, Phil Frietta, I called him last week after this article from Mark Carrig throughout the Athletic about MLB awarding a $20 championship belt the teams that kept down salaries and arbitration. We'll break down what that means, talk about the arbitration process in the CBA, whether this could lead to talk of collusion, talk of a strike, and also talk to Phil about the little bit about the end of the AAF. That league, as of recording on Tuesday, is suspending operations. Looks like they're done. We'll talk about that as well. Also, our entertainment correspondent, Sandra Rose, will be back with us at the end of the show for a special segment, entertainment-wise, called Just Enjoy the Show. We're going to break down some of the latest trailers to drop in recent weeks. Avengers Endgame, the latest one that came out. We're going to talk about that. Toy Story 4 trailer and Stranger Things Season 3. All that good stuff with Sam at the end of the show. But we'll get it all started this week's opening tip. Where we're talking about the Mets. How they got the job done. How they locked up Jacob DeGrom long term. And why we can be very optimistic about them moving forward right after this. Two out, nobody on. Adam Eaton coming up. Swung on and missed strike three. Jacob DeGrom for the second time today has struck out the side. All right, we're back with this week's opening tip. At call, you heard courtesy of WCBS's Howie Rose. Jacob DeGrom striking out the side in the fifth inning of the Mets' opening day win over the Washington Nationals. Jacob DeGrom doing what he does best, working with limited run support, getting one run while he was in the ballgame, and just taking care of the business. Mets win that game. 2 to nothing. Start the year on a winning note. 38th time in the last 50 years they won opening day, which is incredible if you think about that. Just the odds of winning on a given day are 50-50, and they're 38-12 on the first day of the year. Tells you a lot about the quality pitching they have over the years. And one quality pitcher who will not be going anywhere is Mr. DeGrom. And it's funny how being a podcaster works. Last week, when we did the Met Fan Forum, we recorded on Monday night. This was just Hours after Noah Syndergaard went on the offensive, ripping them for not signing DeGrom, and about the trip to Syracuse, and the trip to Sarasota for spring training, and we were all very, very down on the Mets at that point, because there was no reason to expect to get this done. We had heard nothing about this all day. Jacob DeGrom on the weekend had said that he was pessimistic that the deal would get done, and he was not feeling as optimistic about it as he had been, and there was no signs the Mets were going to buck the trend to actually make sure they got their guy locked up. Then... Podcast goes out Monday night. We're all talking about it. And then Tuesday morning, wake up. Jacob the ground the Mets have a deal. Five years, $137.5 million. DeGrom gets an opt after 2022 if he pitches well and can go get more money in the market. The Mets, assuming he stays, have an option for 2024, make it a six year, $170 million contract. And I want to say, I'm sorry to the Mets. Sorry, Dad, you guys. Nice of you to see that you guys got the job done and locked up Jagram long term. And it's funny because when Syndergaard was bashing this trip to Sarasota, that's where this deal got done, according to the Athletic. the The deal gets done in Sarasota, Florida, while the Mets are playing the Orioles in spring training. By the way, Don Smith hits the walk off homer in their last exhibition game of the year. But while that's going on, Jake 
Brody Van Wagenen and Jeff Wilpon have a nine-hour meeting to get this contract done. Got, that went so long that Brody Van Wagenen actually ran to 7-Eleven to get mini tacos for people so they could have fuel to finish this deal. Jeff Wilpon said in The Athletic, remember, there was a whole Twitter buzzstorm on Monday about how the Mets' flight was delayed for three hours, leaving Sarasota, going to Syracuse. Jeff Wilpon said that he was not going to let that plane leave until the deal got done. And lo and behold, the plane left with the deal done. Prior to this, this meeting in Sarasota on Monday, the Mets had offered him three years, $88 million, on top of $17 million in 2019, with a $2 million option for 2020 that could escalate easily based on bonuses. That was clearly not enough guaranteed money for Jake, and any Mets fan would have told you that. That's basically four for about 105 This deal adds another $30 million, $35 million in guaranteed money to the contract. And that's huge for Jake and huge for the Mets. This deal, I mean, yes, there's a lot of deferred money in it. David Wright played a key role here. He got a lot of money deferred in his deal. He suggested a structure similar to this. So they, first of all, great job by David Wright, special advisor. We thought it was going to be, you know, just showing up, shaking hands. No, he's actually in the offices with Brody Van Wagenen and Jeff Wilpon and all the assistant GMs in this, in the uh, traveling roadshow of general managers they have up there. All that good stuff. Dave Wright is actually in there, comes up with the structure to help make this deal done. The Mets defer $52.5 million of that contract, which works out for DeGrom long term because DeGrom's a Florida resident, which means when he's retired in 2035, he's living in Florida. He's not going to pay tax, state income tax on that. He would have to do it now if he played in New York City. But when he gets that check cut for him in Florida, he's not going to pay taxes on that. That will be great for him. The Mets also lowers their present-day commitment, which means that they have more room to upgrade the rosters in the near future, which will help them continue winning. And this is a fantastic deal for both sides. Mets have their ace locked up through 2022 at minimum, probably through 2023. And they have built quietly a young core that can win together for the next couple of years. You have DeGrom is here through 2022. Edwin Diaz is here through 2023. Syndergaard, Mats, and Conforto all locked up through 2021. Brandon Nimmo is here through 2022. Rosario is 2023. Pete Alonso is 2023. And speaking of Alonso, great job on the Mets again bringing him up out of camp and everyone was saying all the extra saying you know they should sit him down for two weeks so they get the extra gear club control and Brody said you know what screw that I want to win right now and Pete Alonso gives the best chance to win what's he done since he came up over the Mets first four games seven for 17 four extra base hits his first home run against Miami on Monday night a massive opposite field three run shot he leads team RBIs he's hitting in the two hole Outside of Max Scherzer, he's crushed everybody who's seen so far. I get that this is not a very small sample size. He's played four big league games, so it's too early to put him in, in the Hall of Fame. But seeing what we got out of Pete Alonso, seeing the Mets say, you know what, screw the service time. We want the best player here. Seeing the fact they said, you know what, we want to keep Jacob DeGrom here long term. We'll pay up to make get this done. This is fantastic if you're a Mets fan. The Mets for far too long in their past, have let their own homegrown players, their great ones, get away for nothing, pretty much. Nolan Ryan goes on to become the 
strikeout king in baseball. The Mets get back Jim Fergrossi, who was a shell of himself after he showed up in New York. The absolute nightmare was the Tom Seaver trade in 1977 that set that franchise back for about a decade, about half a decade, excuse me. He's gone. They let Daryl Strawberry walk away in free agency. They trade away Kevin Mitchell for nothing. And Jose Reyes, as recently as 2011, they let him walk without even making him an offer. And he was still in his prime at that point, just kind of a batting title. Now the Mets are showing, you know what? We want to keep our guys here. Jake is here. He's in long-term. They could probably start talking to Noah Syndergaard now about a long-term deal. Michael Conforto, possibly about a long-term deal. They have a lot of good young players on this team, and I'm very excited to see the direction this team is going to take going forward because the way they've built this roster up, yes, there's no Bryce Harper here. There's no Manny Machado here. There's no like imminent superstar here, but this is a very deep team, one through nine in the batting order. I mean, Evan Roberts said on WFN today, the Mets right now, you can have a debate about whether Dom Smith, J.D. Davis, Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil should be playing, and that's without Jed Lowry and Todd Frazier here. Both of them are hurt. When they get back here, the Mets get even deeper, and that's even before we consider the remote possibility that Yohannes Cespedes shows up in July or August or whenever he gets back. The Mets have built themselves a very deep, very quality roster, and they can compete right now for that National League East title. They may not have the upside that a team that the Philly has, Phillies have with Bryce Harper around, but their floor is a lot higher. I feel like a lot more can go wrong for the Phillies. A lot more can go wrong for the Braves. The Met floor seems much more stable because they, have, they can withstand injuries a little better. Like right now, no one cares that Todd Frazier and Jed Lowry are not here. No one cares about that at all. Right now, this team is primed to have a good year, and there's a different feeling about this club right now. I know Mickey's making mistakes in the lineup. I know Mickey is doing strange things like batting J.D. Davis cleanup when Wilson Ramos is healthy against the left-handed pitcher. I know he's doing strange things like taking out Jeff McNeil after a four-hit day or Pete Alonso after your homework last night because they because they're pre-planned days off, but they are winning in spite of that. And I think that can continue. As Jim Rogelman finally gets more of an influence on Mickey and tells him, hey, Mickey, calm down here. Let's do things a little more like not fly by the seat of our pants here and sort of be willing to ride momentum a little bit. As that goes on and the Mets get deeper into the schedule, I know last year they did got off the hot star as well. Mickey C pushing every button correctly, and then it all blew up after 12 games. And they went right down the tubes. But something feels different here. I know it's been four games. I know there's still 150-plus more to go until we get to the playoffs. But the signs are there. There's a different feeling about this team. Getting DeGrom done lifted a huge black cloud off this organization. This organization was going to have a nightmare on its hands with the fans clearly feeling like, okay, they just want to win for two years and they're going to dump everybody and rebuild. But they have shown now that they are in it for the long haul. They have a young core here that can win when they add pieces to it. And it's a very exciting time to be a Met fan. They, they're a sneakily young team. You don't realize it. Jeff McNeil's 27. Pete Alonso's 24. Ahmed Rosario's 23. Michael Conforto is 25. So is Brandon Nimmo. And those are five guys that you could see in your lineup for the next five years as Mets. Your pitching staff, too. Jacob DeGrom 
a very young 30. Very young, as he has about 400 le- less innings on his arm, like hundreds of innings less on his arm than guys like Madison Bumgarner and Chris Sale, who are at the same age as him. Noah Syndergaard is 26. Steven Matz is 26, 27 years old. This franchise has a lot of young pieces here. And as it grows and as it builds, they have a great chance to make a deep, deep, deep run into the playoffs in the near future. Because with them, the threat is always there. 15 showed it. If they get in the playoffs with their starting rotation, they are extremely difficult to beat. The problem for them has always been just getting that 90-plus wins. Getting the 90 regular season wins it takes to get to October when you can possibly throw DeGrom and Syndergaard five times in a seven-game series. Or three, in a, or three or four in a five-game series if you want to be creative. That is all out there right now. And the possibilities are endless in the Mets. It's very exciting. I cannot wait to see where they go from here. Up next, we're going to go back into the March Madness. Patrick Schmidt from Fanside is going to join us. We're going to talk all about the college hoops, recap the Elite Eight, set out the Final Four, all that coming up right after this. Two-point game. Jerome. Short. Back tap. Diakite. A race for it. Into the hands of Clark. Got a chance to win it here. Up the front. Here's Diakite for the win. For the tie. Diakite squares it at 70. Diakite. He sees the time. He floats it up over. The outstretched arms of harm. This is what you have to love. This is what the tournament is about. All right, and we're back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. That call you just heard from TBS is Brian Anderson and Chris Weber on Virginia getting to the Final Four courtesy of the overtime, the lay-in by Mamadi Diakite to force overtime in that game, one of the many great Elite Eight games. Joining me today to talk about it is a guy who we had a couple weeks ago before the conference tournaments. Fan side is college hoops editor Patrick Schmidt. Patrick, welcome back. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm excited, ready for these final four matchups. Yeah, I can't believe we got such a great elite eight. I mean, all eight game, all four games decided by a combined 18 points was just absurd. Yeah, it was it was really awesome. I you know I hate to be a prisoner of the moment, but that was the best elite eight I, I've seen in a long, long time. Um, you know, we were kind of saying maybe after the first weekend maybe the the tournament was a little bit boring it lacks the the big upsets that we're used to um but you know the the lack of upsets early kept those top seeds uh you know all those one seeds two seeds three seeds that were playing uh over the last weekend so it gave us some great matchups and those great matchups uh, gave us some great games some great finishes at virginia purdue uh finish uh duke virginia tech uh really all the duke games uh and auburn doing what they've been doing uh, just a, a great uh, last few days of uh, the Sweet 16 to Elite Eight. And hopefully this carries over into the Final Four in the National Championship game. Yeah, absolutely. I hope it carries over because it was great for the purists this weekend to watch all the great basketball. Let's start with the West region. We'll go in chronological order here. Let's start with uh, Texas Tech, who literally smothered their opponents to get to the end. How impressive was their defense? Yeah, it's it's great. You know, it's, it's their calling card. Um, that suffocating defense they play, uh, Chris Beard. Uh, one of the rising coaches in the country. Uh, that Gonzaga matchup and, and their uh, number one offense against the number one defense. You know, that the old age is defense wins championships, and so far that's what Texas Tech is hanging their hat on. Um, you know, really putting the clamps on teams. 
you know, we, we love the high-flying dunks and uh, obviously the uh, the advent of a three-point shot and, and how many more teams are trying to uh, to rely on that. But uh, you got to appreciate some great defense, um, and that's what Texas Tech is doing. And, and they could score some points, too, when they have to. Uh, Jared Culver making himself tons of money moving up draft boards. Um, you know, with a, a great tournament run after a, a great regular season where he won the Big Ten Player of the Year. So, uh, yeah, Texas Tech has been been uh, phenomenal this uh, this postseason. Yeah, and they put an end to Gonzaga's possibly their best run in the Mark Few era because Josh Perkins commits that big foul at the end of the game, graduates. Rui Hachimura and, and Brandon Clark might jump to the NBA as lottery picks. Where do they go from here now? Yeah, you know, it's a tough tough way to go out uh, for Gonzaga. Um, you know, but you know, it's kind of one of those situations where they're just going to reload like they like they always tend to do. Uh, they'll remain the, at the top of their uh, at their conference, and they'll get players that fit their system. And yeah, you know, you mentioned it, Brandon Clark. He'll be gone. Rui Hachimura. You know, gotta expect they'll be uh, headed to the uh, NBA. But you know, Zach Norvell. Hopefully, he comes back for them. Um, guy out of Chicago, near where I'm at. So uh, he was kind of like their third. Uh, third wing this year, this year, third, third in scoring was like third in rebounding, second in assists. So it'll kind of be his team next year, provided he uh, he comes back, doesn't declare for the NBA. Like I, I don't think he will. So uh, it'll kind of be a different look team. But um, you know, I, I don't worry too much about Gonzaga. They'll reload. They'll be back. Will there be a one seed? I don't know about that. They're losing two phenomenal, outstanding players, but. Uh, they'll be back. They'll be back in the mix again, top of their conference. And you know, come March again, can't count out Mark Few. Um, they'll make a run again, I'm sure. Yeah, they'll probably be back. Maybe more towards the four seed line like they were last year. But let's go to the South region now. Virginia finally gets the monkey off their back. Tony Bennett's in the Final Four for the first time as the Cavaliers coach, and it's incredible that one year after they lose to the 16th seed, the first one ever, now they're in the Final Four and two wins away from winning the championship. Yeah, it's, a, it's an outstanding story. I mean, last year they were the goats of the tournament. They lose to UNBC. Like, first time a, a one's ever lost to 16. They were just the jokes, basically, of, uh, you know, of college basketball. And, they're you know, they're going to have to wear that, you know, basically forever, every tournament that's going to come around. Uh, they're going to be the one one seed that's mentioned. But a uh, huge turnaround. Got to give credit to Tony Bennett and the guys in the locker room. Uh, they were a part of that team last year that went through that failure uh, to come back and make a, a huge march all the way to the Final Four. The resiliency they've shown, the confidence they show, it's uh, it's incredible. And, you know, like Texas Tech, Virginia, they play they play some great defense too. Uh, it's not exactly a, a fun brand of basketball to watch, but they're great at what they do. Tony Bennett gets the most out of the players he has. And, you know, they, all they do is they just win. So um, outside of uh, a couple of games with Duke in the regular season. This team has been uh, practically unbeatable. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they fare up uh, or match up in the Final Four um, when they go against Auburn, who's been you know maybe the hottest team in the country. Yeah, we'll get to Auburn in a second. I also want to pour one out for Carson Edwards because that guy plays hard out the entire tournament because literally like this guy I feel like is a fringe prospect of the NBA for a star, and then he goes and becomes Superman for four games, and now I feel like he might be a first-round pick in the NBA next year. Yeah, that's one of the, the best stories of like, or like one of the better things about the, the NCAA tournament. You get these guys that, um, you know, maybe they have great college careers, but 
you know, they're they're kind of just really known in like their region, like in their conference or the area where they play their games. And you know, they get in this national spotlight, and you know, they can make a huge name for themselves. Carson Edwards just taken over uh, a couple of huge, huge, huge scoring outbursts. Uh, you know, breaking Stephen Curry's uh, old record. He having his at Davidson for most points in like a four or five game span, or or whatever the uh, exact record was a tournament run. So, yeah, I mean. Uh, it seemed like every shot he was throwing up was falling down. Uh, the speed, the burst he has, um, you know, I, I would definitely like this guy on my team. He's probably going to go in the in the bottom of the first round, most likely. Um, so he's going to go to a team like a, a good playoff team, and and maybe a nice uh, second guard to leave that bench unit, maybe as a rookie or second year type guy. So, a uh, great college career, and and it looks like he's going to go to a, a nice situation at the next level. Yeah, it'll be fun to see where he ends up in the draft. Let's go to Auburn, who we brought up before. I feel like they have to be the most surprising team in here because for most of the regular season, they were kind of just met in the SEC, barely doing what it took to just get by and sit there. Then they beat Tennessee at the end. They win the conference tournament, and then they go through the juggernaut of Kansas, uh, North Carolina, Kentucky just to get to the Final Four. I feel like it's just amazing that they're here. Yeah, I mean, you look at the team in like mid-February or so, they were just you know, not good, you know, and, you know, even like basically this whole winter, they're kind of like, they'd win one, they'd lose two, they'd win three, they'd lose two. It was just, they couldn't get any kind of good, consistent rhythm. And then, you know, end of February comes around, or really it was like the, when they got their uh, hats handed to them uh, at Kentucky, end of February, they lost by like 27, 28 points, I think it was. And then that jump starts this, uh, this long winning streak and you know Harper's been on fire and you know it stinks they lose Okiki to the torn ACL I mean the guy was just you know playing his best basketball at the, the most important time of the year so uh you know that stinks for them but man talking about the three-point shot they're just dropping bombs left and right against North Carolina and it continued uh against Kentucky so they've just been on fire I keep waiting for this uh, this run to kind of run out and kind of, you know, the shots aren't falling, uh, but they're falling for now. And, I mean, Bruce Pearl, uh, say what you will about the guy. He's certainly had his fair share of, uh, you know, uh, off-court shenanigans. Uh, but as far as, you know, the X's and O's and motivation and leadership and, and getting what he can out of his guys and having his guys play for him, uh, he's one of the better ones around. Um so, yeah, it's going to be uh, an awesome game, that Auburn-Virginia game. Um, man, I guess they kind of kind of wear the, the Cinderella label uh, as a five seed, but uh, they're certainly not playing like it. Yeah, they're certainly not. Let's go to the last region here, the East. Michigan State pull off one of the stars this tournament. They slay the Duke Giant. They take down the, th- the three freshmen with Zion Williamson. How do they do it? You know, it's classic Michigan State basketball, really. I mean – a total team game, total team effort. Um, you know, Izzo, obviously, you know, one of the three or four best coaches in the game, one of the best to ever do it. Um, it's, it's just been remarkable, you know, beating a more talented Duke team. I don't, I don't think anybody at Michigan State is going to say they have the more, you know, talented players. Uh, certainly they have great players in their own right, but, uh, you know, what Winston's doing, Tillman's doing, uh, Goins, what all these guys have been able to do uh, all tournament and especially against Duke, uh, it's just been awesome to see, you know, a five-man unit or a seven-man unit. Uh, everybody kind of knows their role. Everybody does it. Nobody tries to do too much. It's like it's just been kind of awesome, whereas you look at Duke, 
and it was, hey, we got this great singular talent in Zion Williamson. We got another really great talent in R.J. Barrett. Maybe he's kind of playing out of position a little bit uh, just based on the roster that Duke has. And, you know, Coach K kind of just let him out on the court to do their thing. Izzo, he's running a, a finely high-tuned, structured engine, and it, you know, came down in the last seconds, and Michigan State prevailed. So uh, it's, it's just kind of been awesome to see what Izzo, getting back here, uh, what he's been able to do once again. Yeah, it also says a lot about Duke, too, that two years around now they have this collection of McDonald's All-Americans, they have all this talent there, and then they just can't get it together because that lack of experience means a lot in this tournament. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Coach K is going gonna to get a lot and a lot of criticism for this. Um, you know, might have been the most talented team Duke's had since, uh, you know, the Jay Williams, Dunleavy, Boozer, Shane Battier uh, teams in, uh, you know, the, around the turn of the century. So uh, to not even get a Final Four out of this, uh, that's going to sting all off Jesus for Duke. Uh, of course, you know, when we talk about how, how Gonzaga is, is going to come back, uh, Duke's definitely going to come back from this. They'll get the next wave of, uh, you know, one-and-done stars, and we'll see if K can have better success at that than he did with the uh, – the Duke, uh, Zion, RJ, Cam Reddish uh, trinity. Yeah, now we're going to the Final Four. We have our two matchups set. Let's start with the UVA-Auburn game. The Similar to the Texas Tech and Zag with the high-power offense taking on the very good defense. Is that the big that that's the big key of the game, just how Virginia's defense matches up with the Auburn offense and limits them from the outside? Yeah, really. I think Auburn's going to – or, yeah, Virginia's going to try and limit the possession for, for Auburn, and, and Auburn's going to try and run a little bit. And uh, get more shots, and the more three-point shots they get, uh, you know, the more they can kind of add those uh, points per possession. So uh, Virginia's going to try and play it in the the fifty to fifty-five range, and Virginia's going to try and play it in the uh, the eighty to eighty-five range. So the team that can play their ball uh, the best and for the longest stretches of time, uh, I think, is going to win. I'm hesitant to pick Auburn. Um, they're losing uh, their big man, and these shots have been falling. Um, I think just maybe a couple of days off here after the Sweet 16 Elite Eight run, maybe that cools them off a little bit. Uh, Virginia, they just look, they just look great. You know, their shots are falling. The defense is going. Everything is clicking for them. So, I'm leaning Virginia in that early game. All right, the other game, Michigan State, Texas Tech. That might be a rock fight with the way those te- these two teams play defense. So, I, honestly, it might be the first of 60 wins. Yeah, you know, maybe even like 54, something <laughs> like that. Uh, we, we've seen both these teams, uh, you know, they can, you know, put on the bicycles on these other opposing offenses. And, you know, they, they can't run their offense. They can't run their sets. They can, you know, the 24-second violations. And, you know, it just kind of teams force the issue and they press. And then, you know, the late-game situation is kind of like what happened with Gonzaga where they just, you know, they kind of just short-circuit and self-destruct there at the end. So, um, it's not going to be a, like I don't think either of these two games are going to be exactly like beautiful like you know displays of like shot making and, and great uh, offensive uh, explosive plays and whatnot. Uh, whoever plays the best defense is going to win both these games. Uh, whoever can make the clutch plays, whoever can hit their free throws late. But um, I, I, I really don't know which way I'm leaning. You know, today I might say Michigan State. You ask me again later in the week, I might say Texas Tech. Um, but I think the deciding factor for me, it's really Tom Izzo. You know, this is the first Final Four for Chris Beard. He was in the Elite Eight last year, so uh, he's definitely, like, you know, I might have him at the top of the line behind, the, like, our elite established Mount Rushmore coaches. Um, but, you know, 
I think it's like a two and a half point spread. Uh, that pretty pretty much feels uh, perfect. Um, so yeah, the difference being Izzo for me. So I think I'll take Michigan State by a bucket in that one. All right. So yeah, Michigan State and Virginia playing a title game Monday. Who do you think would win that? Oh man, you know I went for Izzo in the uh, in the Final Four, but I think I'm going to go with Tony Bennett and Virginia uh, if that is the matchup. Uh, Virginia just playing the, the best basketball from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, uh, and I think that that chip on their shoulder, that that failure from last year, is really really burning inside these players and these coaches. So uh, I think that's uh, a really 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 big intangible that's going to be tough to overcome for for whoever they play, whether it's Texas Tech, Michigan State, or Auburn in the Final Four matchup. That's going to be one hell of a story if it happens. Patrick Smith, thank you for all the time today. Before we let you go, y'all, everybody know how to find on social media and some of the stuff we're up to on Fanside for the uh, Final Four in college basketball? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. at my name, uh, at Patrick A. Schmidt. And, uh, yeah, check us out. Fanside's going to have a ton of great stuff uh, for the Final Four, for the National Championship game. Um, and really all week uh, leading up to those games. And uh, Monday night should be a blast with the title game uh, and all the, uh, the spillover and fallouts. And we'll have a, uh, a way too early look at the top 25 for next year. So uh, as soon as the season ends, we'll, uh, we'll take a big look at uh, what's coming up next year too. All right, that sounds great. Patrick, thank you for all the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was Patrick Schmidt talking college hoops, breaking down the Elite Eight, setting up the Final Four. Up next, we're going to have a little legal talk with our legal correspondent, Phil Frietta. We're going to break down the Mark Carrig article from The Athletic last week, all about baseball trying to game the system in salary arbitration, what that means going forward, all that coming up right after this. All right, and we're back here on the Just End of Suffering podcast. Our brand new legal segment will pop up as we need it. Right now, we definitely need it. I was reading an article last week on the in The Athletic from Mark Carrig, the baseball writer. The article called, Ready to Strike Tomorrow, How One $20 Toy Belt Captures the Strike with a $10 Billion Industry. This belt is basically a, to- a prop handed out from the league to teams that do their best to maintain goals set by the industry or as Craig puts it keep salaries down as soon as I read this I said you know what I gotta get my legal guy on the podcast again so I reached out to our little correspondent he's here with us today to talk about what this article means for the baseball labor process going forward Phil Friday is back with us Phil welcome how are you hi Mike uh, doing well uh, back-to-back week so that's pretty cool yeah, back-to-back weeks. This is sort of an emergency call. As soon as I got, read this article, I texted it to you. I said, have you seen this? And you said, we have a lot to discuss here. I was very, very surprised to, to see that article. Um, uh, it's, you know, the, the labor relations in Major League Baseball are not great, and I think this has potential to be a real, real problem. All right, let's start off with the headline here, which is this idea of the belt, which is basically what Carrick sums up as is, like, every year league meetings that these teams sort of go about, like, say, oh, we'll set guidelines what we want teams to do to live up to metrics for salary arbitration. And at the end of the meetings, they give out this belt to the team that best did their met the metrics or kept the salaries down. What was your immediate reaction when you read that? Shocked. Uh, r- really shocked. So I understand that the way that uh, 
the way that this is going to work. And, and look, the teams employ people, including attorneys, who uh, their job is to win the arbitration case for their for their client, the team. So I understand patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, we did a good job. But the reason it becomes a problem in the baseball realm and any professional sport is that take two teams, for example, Houston and the Rays. Uh, these the Astros and the Rays, they're supposed to be competing with each other. So if they're collaborating together to keep salaries down, that's a problem because that's, that's where you can start entering into the collusion realm. And in, if to just use an example for the listeners, it, it would be like if Apple and Google were colluding with each other to keep the software engineers' salaries down. That, that would never be allowed. Yeah, that would never be allowed for sure. Before we dive deeper into that, let's go into the salary arbitration system for a minute. Can you give us an explanation of how this process works and how, like, basically what baseball has set up is that years one to three of a player's big league career, sometimes four, depending on when they call the guy up, it's like basically they pay next to nothing. They get basically league minimum salary. And then years four to six, before they hit free agency, they go to salary arbitration. What does that process entail? Sure. So uh, I guess I can give you a little bit of the background history, too. For the longest time, there was no such thing as free agency in Major League Baseball. Uh, so the team that you worked for was the team that the only team that you were allowed to work for. And if that team wanted to renew your contract, they could renew your contract basically at their own terms. Uh, that changed in the 70s, and they instituted a free agency plan uh, after the players union threatened to strike. But the way that it worked, was they said, okay, what we're going to give you is we're going to give the team something. So the first, like you said, three years of a guy's career, he's uh, controlled by his team. He can only play for his team unless they cut him, and they can renew his contract. Once you get to year four, then you enter arbitration years, and I think it's, it's four, five, and then six, and after six, you're a free agent. So those years, what you end up doing is uh, you can, at the end of the year, say both sides get to submit a, uh, a number of what they think the player's worth. So, say the team says he's worth $5 million, the player says he's worth $7 million. Then an arbitrator decides, but what's unique about baseball arbitration versus any other kind of arbitration is that the arbitrator's hands are tied in that he has to side with one side or the other. He can't split the number and say, I'll give you $6 million. He He's got to pick one team or the other, and that's designed to incentivize the team and the player to settle because it's an all-or-nothing proposition if they actually go to the arbitration hearing. Yeah, and for a long time, a lot of these teams were willing to settle with their players. I mean, like, a lot of teams still do, but now there's this whole new method that Craig mentioned in his article, this whole file and trial idea. You want to, Can you explain to me how that works? Yeah, so uh, that, that's really what caught me off guard, because as I said, the system's designed to incentivize you to, to uh, settle, because... You know, if I in the example I gave, if I take that player to arbitration, I may end up paying him seven million, where we could probably meet in the middle at six, and I save myself a million bucks. But what the teams are doing, according to the article, is they're saying to the players, "Look, if you file for arbitration, then that's fine. We'll see you at trial." And that's that's really a hardline negotiating stance. That's gonna it, it makes things really difficult for the players, and it's really against the spirit of the arbitration proceeding. And I'm not really sure why the teams are doing that. Uh, I, I guess they've got some insight that they will outperform the player at the arbitration hearing, or they feel that the player has no leverage in the in the process. But it does create a, a lot of risk on both sides. And, and you also have the uncomfortable situation of 
you don't want a team and the player at odds with each other. Uh, I remember a few years ago, the Yankees did something like this with Dylan Batances, and it really rubbed, came off the wrong way because, you know, the fans are going to side with their player, especially a guy like Dylan, who uh, for his whole, his whole career he's gone out there and thrown innings for the Yankees. But some of the things that come up in arbitration proceedings are like, well, he's not a closer, so he doesn't have a lot of saves. So he could get less money. And, and that could be dangerous for the team because now you're incentivizing the player to say, fine, I have to put up numbers. I can't, if the manager wants me to drop down a bunt, I can't do that because when I get to arbitration, they're going to say, oh, you only hit 29 home runs and not 30. Yeah, it also creates a toxic atmosphere, like you mentioned, whereas like the player, the, the basically the team wants the player to perform, but then they go to this hearing and say, you know what, like, here are reasons A, B, C, and D why he shouldn't get what he wants in, sal- in terms of salary, which I think that just creates a bad atmosphere in terms of just around the whole sport right now. Sure, the team's forced to criticize their own player, and sometimes it can be over silly things like he only had 29 home runs instead of 30, but other times it can be real flaws in the guy's game. You could say uh, he, he strikes out a lot, he has a low on-base percentage, things like that. Yeah, that's for sure. And also, like, especially I feel like it's more prevalent now when you're in the stereometric era of the game where a team can say, like, oh, our advanced data shows that, like, he's worth three wins above replace and we value that at $6 million as opposed to, like, he might say, I did put up accounting stats X, Y, and Z and I'm worth $10 million. I feel like that just creates more problems. Yeah, uh, that that's definitely true. Although, I mean, the advanced stats are available to both sides. And uh, I know I know the article said that they're not – Cited often in arbitration proceedings, I would imagine that will change, though, uh, as those stats become more and more accepted in the general community. Yeah, so like when we have stuff like this, we have the players already on edge because of the whole free agents not getting a ton of money deal outside of the big guys like your Harpers and your Machados. But like, you like this kind of article where you have the league literally giving out a belt to teams who keep salaries down. Could that, in a legal sense of the word, point give the players a case for collusion? I don't know if it gives the players a case for actual collusion just because the the elements of proving actual collusion are nearly impossible. Uh, When I came on to talk about the Kaepernick situation a a few weeks ago, I I spoke about this, and the reason why is that you would have to assume that people who run professional baseball teams are smart enough to not write down any or leave a paper trail of any sort of actual collusion, although this belt situation maybe is a paper trail. So I, I don't know if it leads to actual collusion, but it certainly is going to lead to at least the union being comfortable throwing that word around in the public yeah, uh, arena. Yeah, for sure. And when, in fact, if, if Carrig got it, and I mean, he's a good reporter, but like the fact he's able to dig this up and get information on it, I mean, you make me think at least that, you know, maybe there's some sort of document somewhere in, in the baseball offices where they say, oh, we have like a system set up. And then like, here's who gets the belt and why. That's sort of like, let me, that's why I sort of led that question. I'm sure Tony Clark is talking to his uh, legal team about it, and I'm sure they're they're thinking that maybe we can find some evidence. Yeah, and it's also this problem with the free agents right now. I mean, we thought I sent you a tweet the other day from Jason Stark to look at the plight of Mark Reynolds, who is we all know is like he's a good player. He heads for power, plays a good first base, but not really superstar level. Stark reported for it basically that Reynolds received no phone calls for weeks from teams, and then. On the same day, four or five teams called him, all offering the same minor league contract. I mean, this to me is like, how stupid are these teams? They're all going to try and do the same thing at the same time. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, that that screams of collusion, too. If you look at a guy like Reynolds, uh, I mean, he, he put, he's put up 
three consecutive years of a plus 800 OPS, that, that's a solid Major League Baseball player. Uh, you definitely think you could find a spot for him, especially in the National League with pinch hitters. And uh, it's strange that not only are the teams not interested in signing these guys, but then they would all come at the same time to come with the uh, minor league contracts. That, that screens of collusion. And like I said, that it would be like Google and Apple talking to each other before hiring software developers. Yeah, and like I mentioned before, we also have this thing with all the players not getting paid. I mean, Harper and Machado got their money great. A lot of these guys, a lot of these guys, though, had to settle for like not many guys got three year contracts. Not many got two year deals, and we still have top readings like Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimball are unemployed, and we're days into the baseball season. How big a problem are we having right now with this free agent system? Uh, it's a huge problem. I, I think they need to change it. And uh, well, the reason why it's become a problem is that you're talking about six years at bare minimum before you hit free agency, and you alluded to it earlier. Sometimes people use uh, this manipulation of the service time to get a seventh year. But, but even so, that means that guys are hitting free agency around 30. And in the modern era, with no performance-enhancing drugs and no greenies even, uh, these players are dropping off by the time they hit their mid-30s. So what you're doing is these guys are hitting free agency way too late, and nobody's interested in signing a 30-year-old. And that, that's what's going on, uh, and it's a big problem for the union. So I think that what you're going to see is the union push real hard to lower that six-year time frame to maybe three or four years to try and uh, try and get get some more money for their guys. And I think the other problem is is – kind of the way the fans approach it and uh i heard you know i've heard like the baseball beat on this podcast even and and the number say take bryce harper it jumps out at you wow i can't believe the guy got 330 million mike trout 400 plus manny machado 300 plus but you have to remember that these guys are on the other side of the negotiating uh table so to speak are billionaires so I think the fans a lot of times feel that they, the players are getting overpaid, but that money's just going into the pocket of the billionaire owners who are making billions of dollars in revenue. Yeah, it's not. I think cut- it hurts the players' union in the uh, court of public opinion. Yeah, it's also not like the owners are cutting the ticket price for the fans. They're they're saving the dollars. They're putting it right in their back in their pockets. Sure, and uh, look, uh, there's been study after study done, and I know fans will never believe it, but. Player salaries have no correlation to ticket prices, hot dog prices, beer prices. It's just not true. It's it's all generated by the interest in seeing the game. And the the players, what they're trying to do is they're just trying to get a what they think is a fair stake of the revenue. And when the revenue you're talking about is billions of dollars, then that's going to mean millions of dollars for the players. Yeah, so obviously right now this this is a problem that needs to be addressed. When they before opening day, when the players agree to the, to the uh, rule changes about the roster reductions that are going to take place next year, the roster expansion, the three three batter minimum rule. One of the things that was agreed to was the idea that we're going to open talks some point this, after the start of the season to address the economic issues in the game. Now that this has come out, do you think that if these talks go badly, we're heading for a strike? Uh, I, I think there's a real possibility that there's going to be a strike. And I, I honestly can't even blame the union if they do go on strike again. Uh, they're, in a, they're in a situation where I understand that Manny Machado and Bryce Harper got paid, but a lot of their guys are not getting paid. And the union represents everybody. They don't just represent Machado and Harper. So when you have guys like Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimbrell 
on the free agent market in April, you, you have a, a problem that needs to be addressed. And if the owners aren't willing to address that problem, I would not be surprised if uh, players do go on strike. What would you think a time frame would be that? Do you think like if we don't hear something about like if we don't make progress by the All Star break, you think you could see a walkout around there? I think it's possible this season, but I think it's more likely next season. My understanding is the CBA expires, I think, in 21. Yes, it does. So uh, I think next year would be the real time when when the strike would actually happen. I wouldn't be surprised if you hear some rumors about it this season, if there's no real progress being made. But next year is when they, they're really going to have to sit down at the table and come out with at least a basic framework for a new agreement, or else I, I would think that the union will will strike yeah so you think that like what kind of like concessions do you think have to be made besides the you think the free agency is the biggest thing is that you have to get these guys out of their original contracts earlier yeah I, I think that's the that's the biggest thing and you know the baseball union they kind of did this to themselves in the last go around of uh, negotiations it's my understanding that this was discussed but the union kind of caved on the on these pressures about free agency because they were given some other, what I think are immaterial benefits, such as there's now a chef in every major league baseball clubhouse and they got a couple extra off days throughout the season. So those are things that the owners are threw in to kind of appease the players and the union took it. But I think the union now realizes that that was a mistake and they're going to go to that negotiating table saying, if we don't, we need to lower the free agency years. Otherwise, no deal. That that would be my position if I was Tony Clark. That would I would say that's non-negotiable. And if if you guys want a deal, then we need to agree on that. Yeah, for sure. I think is now that the owners and wisened up. They hire all these like Ivy League or eight K GMs who won't pay for what you did on the back of your baseball car anymore. So like the old system is broken because. Like you said, if you get to free agency at 30, they're not going to pay you what you did for 20 to 29. They're going to pay you based on what the model says you're going to do from like 30 to 34. Right. And, and to explain just for the listeners, the, the reason that the union originally negotiated this was this was actually Marvin Miller's idea. And Marvin Miller, who used to run the union, uh, who should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way, but that's a different story. Uh, Miller thought that, well, if I stagger the free agency – teams will overpay for mediocre players because if I'm in a pennant race and I need a third baseman, I'll go out and pay uh, the third ba- um, some mediocre third baseman more money than he deserves just so I can get a third baseman on my team. But that, and that worked out really well in the 90s or even in the early 2000s, but that has just stopped now. Now, now teams will say, I'm not going to sign the mediocre veteran third baseman. I'll just call up some kid from the farm and give him a shot, see how he does. For a lot less money. Yeah, and, and you save a lot of money by doing that. And to be frank, uh, a lot of times you see the performances of these younger players are superior to these middle-aged players. Yeah, for sure. So we got a lot on our plate to deal with that. Before I let you go, I want to touch on the AAF news. The Upstart League is suspending operations right now. They are probably going out of business because the owner of the league right now, who I believe also owns the Carolina Hurricanes, pulled his support for the league and – he apparently has lost $7 million, but an interesting tweet came out today from, I believe it was Albert Breer from the MMQB, and what he said earlier in the day was basically that perception inside the league is that the Hurricanes owner, Tom Dundon, he's the guy, he bought a majority stake in the league just for the gambling app that the league was developing, and Dundon 
apparently got the technology wide without a without a massive headache, and he apparently shut the lead down over the objections of the other two main partners, Bill Polley and Charlie Eppersall. Do you think we're going to be going to court here with the with these three parties trying to basically fight for the future of this league? Yeah, that that sounds like there's going to be some sort of a lawsuit uh, amongst the three of them. Probably not even for the future of the league, but more so just for the uh, the money, because it sounds like Polian uh, and 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 his partner thought that uh, the the Hurricane guy, sorry, name slipping me, yeah, Dundon uh, was actually in this for the for the football, and it sounds like he wasn't. So uh, that that that's an issue between them, but. What, I think the AAF thing kind of proves how difficult it is to compete with the NFL. Uh, it certainly leaves the people who were saying that Colin Kaepernick should sign with that league. They have some egg on their face, given how quickly that league went under. But uh, it, it sounds when when you buy an asset, it's weird to think of a sports team as an asset, but that's what it is. And you may be buying it for reasons other than the football. And it sounds like this uh, purchase was made for the gambling situation and uh that that's normally fine but it it's a problem if not everybody on the team knows that yeah it's a little bit kind of like insider trading am i wrong uh that insider trading is one way to do it i mean it's it's also kind of like fraudulent inducement that's the term i would use you're basically tricking people to uh to go along and do what you want under false pretenses and and that's 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 a problem if if that's really what happened. Um, the the way that the situation works though is you just have to remember that just because somebody bought a football league or a football team does not mean that they're actually interested in that team playing football. They they may be more interested in some other peripheral benefits like like a gambling app. All right, Phil, that was very insightful. Thank you for all the time again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, happy to join you and. Uh, in case the listeners couldn't tell, I, I happen to be on the union side in this baseball dispute. Yeah, I feel like I'm on their side as well because I feel like they've had they have so much more to lose than the owners do because the owners are just billionaires upon billionaires upon billionaires, and they're all making money in real estate and all this. The players really just have this right now. That's really all they have left. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but uh, it should be interesting to keep your eyes on, and uh, and I hope we don't get a strike because uh, you know baseball is back, and I love watching it. Yeah, same here. I hope we don't see any strikes anytime soon. I've enjoyed the labor piece. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, so I will talk to you uh, soon. Thanks for having me on. No problem, Phil. Thanks for all the time. All right, that was Phil Frietta on a little bit of a legal update here, giving, breaking down the article from the Athletics' Mark Craig on the latest labor situation in baseball. After that downer of a segment, let's have some fun. Let's do a little Just Enjoy the Show. We're going to be joined in the studio in just moments by Sam DeRosa, our pop culture correspondent. We're going to talk some movie trailers. That's coming up right after this. All right, we are back on the podcast, Just End the Show, a brand new segment for our entertainment fans. Last time I heard complaints that we did we did the uh, Netflix and Space Jam, that it was not appropriate two-minute drill, so I figured let's rebrand. We'll call it Just, End, Just Enjoy the Show to fit the theme of the show, 
And joining us, as always, our entertainment correspondent, Sam DeRosa, is back with us. Sam, welcome. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Not a problem. Glad to have you back on. Obviously, we may plan to see Cat Noir, but life gets in the way. I have barely had time to do anything. We're not going to see it, so we're going to put that one on the back burner. But we do have some entertainment stuff to hit on today. Oh, I'm very excited. Yeah, we have a little trailer season to talk about. Some big movie trailers. The Stranger Things 3 trailer dropped. All that's coming out. But if you are spoiler-averse, and we are going to discuss these trailers in detail, I'm going to play our new spoiler sound. So I'm giving you a few, a few seconds here to get out if you do not want to hear any talk about trailers and spoilers. So... You have been warned. That is our spoiler <laughs> warning. Get out of the building if you do not want to hear talk about these trailers. We're going to dive in right now with Avengers Endgame. The latest trailer came out. Sam, what was your takeaway from that? Uh, just pure excitement. And then, um, I don't know. I'm just very excited for I've been excited for this movie even before the trailer dropped. And surprisingly enough, I was more excited about the posters that just came out than the trailer Those just posters because were sick i know they were so good it's just i really want to know what it's going to be and i cannot wait the, I mean, the tagline is perfect the avenge the fallen it's like yes. so great i love the little avenger a in there and like i mean we learned some fates of characters i mean we learned which again spoilers if you're not if you're not out yet shuri's dead she did not survive the snap and that was very unfortunate yeah i mean Oh, she was one of my favorite characters yeah. as well, so I was very disappointed in that one. Yeah, and it's funny because I had Black Panther sitting in my house from Netflix. I haven't opened it yet, and now it's made me more bummed watching, like, oh, she didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, like, one thing I thought was interesting about that trailer, and I don't know if you agree with this, is, like, they, when they went back and showed the footage in the old movies, like, from the original Iron Man, mm-hmm. from Thor 1, from Cap 1, it was all in black and white. How would you like that? That was a really interesting way to, you know, just show the then and now kind of deal, like, I... It, it was very creative, and it showed, like, the highs and the lows, but, like, the opposite of color. Because yeah. you would put the lows normally in black and white, but yeah. that's, like, you know, the good old days kind of with the black and white. So yeah. I just, yeah, it's very interesting, whoever thought about that. Yeah, that was, uh, a, that was a unique inversion. Yeah. I also like the tagline that they use at the end a lot, the whatever it takes. It's sort of, like, is the tone I feel like it takes for this movie. And the, the rumored runtime, I don't know if you've heard, is over three hours. Yeah, I think it, it's going to be like three hours and two minutes now. I think that's what the, was confirmed. I forgot which uh, movie theater leaked that. Yeah, it might have been AMC, I want to say. It's either AMC or Regal. Yeah. Eh, maybe it was AMC, now that you say it, that sounds correct. I, th- <laughs> I think that was it, as far as I know. But like the other thing I think, big takeaway from this trailer, the Captain Marvel appearance at the end of it. We, yes. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get into Captain Marvel today, but, like, how hyped are you when you see her just stare there and watch Thor's uh, axe go fly right by her head? Yeah, I'm so excited. I think that she's going to be a big um, asset for the yeah. team. That, yeah. But then poor Nick Fury, he was yeah. he was the fallen, too. Yeah. Like, so I was like, he, that was the last thing he did is call Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, he saved the universe, possibly, called yeah, Captain Marvel. Yeah, love Samuel L. Jackson, so props to him. <laughs> yeah, her post, yeah, they addressed that in the post credits. Not going to spoil it for anybody who's not seen it, including Sam. But yes, like, ugh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, they, have, they address how she shows up, and it was it was a lot of fun. And I like the line when Hemsworth is Thor, so I was like, I like her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In his fatted Thor accent. That yes. was great. On uh, a scale of one to ten, how hyped are you for this movie? Um, probably an eight. See, I was very, very hyped for, you know, the last Avengers movie. Yeah. And <laughs> I know this sounds horrible, but, like, I liked it, but I also didn't like it. Because I didn't like how he, you know, Thanos snapped. And I knew there was going to be a second one, but, like, I was just, like, so annoyed because... 
I love like all these characters who yeah. are now gone. Yeah, I, I felt bad too. Like for me, it's it's. I think I'm with you. I'm at the eight because like they haven't given away too much. So I can't really get super super hyped. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like Infinity War when you had Thanos coming out and he's just like wrecking all this stuff and you're like, wow, this is gonna be awesome. This is really just. These guys are just mourning right now. Right, and then the first trailer that came out, they said it was the only like the first twenty minutes yeah. that were the scenes. So, I don't. They don't want anybody to know what's going on. No, I, I'm. I'm gonna be. I have a choice to make. If I want to go to watch the draft, or I want to do this. So I may mm. have to just dive off of social media. That's gonna be a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to another movie. Toy Story Four. That trailer dropped last week. Obviously, the big breakout character of this, Sporky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was your impression when you saw Sporky? Um, like you know, just seeing him. I actually watched a trailer when I was in a meeting yeah. without the sound on, and I was like, "This is dumb." But I, I don't know who voices him. But then when I heard it with the voice, I was a little more like accepting. But it's just like you know, Woody gets lost again, and then he finds Bo Peep. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm a little hesitant about it to be completely honest with you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought Bo Peep. That was my next question because obviously she was not in Toy Story three. She shows up mm-hmm. here in Toy Story four, and like. She's changed. Yeah. She's, like, she's dark. Yeah, she's AF. a dark boat. Yeah, she's dark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what was your takeaway with that? I was like, what they do to her? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's, like, um, kind of like Jessie. Like, you know, like, yeah. when she gets thrown away, she's like, I, this is the life. Like, this is what happens. And, like, just you haven't experienced that yet, Woody. And, and then I'm interested to see if, like, he's going to stay, like, with her. Because he's, like, starting to realize that he's going to be thrown away one day. Yeah, it's funny you brought up the whole like Toy Story 2 kind of repeat angle because our friend John Stanko says on Twitter when he saw that show, he's like, I feel like they've done this before. Yeah, maybe. They're probably thinking that we all yeah. forgot because yeah. we were so young when the movie came out. <laughs> all right, let's go to the hype scale here. One to ten, how are you feeling about this movie? I'm doing a five just because it's Toy Story. It's just going to be right in my mid-pack of excitement. I'm going with a three. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> I got bummed by that. I like was disappointed because I was expecting more out of them because they take so long to make these movies. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Toy Story 2 to 3 was such a massive jump. It was so good. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there. I'm like, we're doing a movie about a spork. Yeah. I mean, um, I feel our, like maybe the mm, spork won't mm, be the majority. I think yeah. that it's like a cover up because yeah. Disney does this sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I hope you're right because that was disappointing to me. I was very upset about that. Yeah. But last but not least, our mixed trailer, Stranger Things Season 3 coming out on Netflix on July 4th. Trailer dropped, I think, what was it, a couple days ago? Uh, Yeah. Or like about a week. Yeah. It had to be a couple days almost a week ago. Yeah. How... How excited were you for that one? I'm very excited. I truly do love Stranger Things. I thought it was a very creative and different um, type of show that Netflix picked up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always curious to see where each season's going to go. And I like that they're throwing, like, the teenager vibe. Though I kind of got, like, a low-key It vibe. I don't yeah. know if you've seen the new It. Yes. This is, like, teenagers fighting, like, evil. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the one thing I was curious about because, like, obviously the music was fantastic. And both, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bob O'Reilly coming up was awesome. Yeah. And, like, the thing that jumped out is the whole thing where if it, which Mike says is, like, yeah, it's like, we're not kids anymore. We're not going to hide in my basement. I'm like, that's an issue that I think, like, is kind of meta with the show because, like, these child actors are growing up. So, like, how much longer do they can keep this going? Yeah. And then did you see the thing with the hair tie? Yeah. Oh, that was so sweet with yeah. um, Eleven, like, yeah. with Hopper's daughter. Like, yeah. it was her hair tie. Yeah. I just, like, think that's such a great relationship that they have, too. And I'm just excited to see how it progresses again, yeah. like, this season. Yeah. I was, I think the judge that I meet the most is the mall. The mall just oh, felt yeah. like so 80s, and like seeing Steve work at the mall was so much fun. Oh my god, I love Steve. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably like my favorite character. I want to see. Show. I want to see more Steve and Dustin this year because yes, we, they, the best friends. <laughs> yeah, it was the most unexpected like bromance to break yes, out in season two. Definitely. So I remember the Duffer Bar was like, we had no idea what to do with Steve, and then we just put him with Dustin. It just worked. And that's like, great. Yeah. I love that. I'm so <laughs> glad that like that's just like happens. Like you know, it's like fate aligns, like yeah. the stars align, and there they are together. 
Okay, and hype scale, 1 to 10 on Stranger Things Season 3. I'm probably more on, like, an. I. it's hard for me to go past an 8. Like, an 8 and a half, 9, just yep. because, like... I just, I don't know. I just am a little pessimistic sometimes, yeah. and that's where I get nervous. I, I find hard to believe you pessimistic. I'm, I surprisingly <laughs> uh, sometimes can be a little pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with a nine on this one. I'm very hyped for this show. I cannot yeah. wait for it to come back. I feel like they hit all the right notes in that trailer where you got just enough like nostalgia and just enough horror coming there. Like, I can't wait for this to come out. Yeah, also miss mall summers. Like, yeah. that's the thing that doesn't happen anymore, like the excitement at the mall. No, I do miss those days. <laughs> all the malls by me are just deprep- depressing now. So Yeah, I feel like all malls kind of took like the backseat in the technology age. <laughs> all right, there you have it. That's our trailer breakdown for the week on Just Enjoy the Show. Sam, thanks for coming by. Before we go, I know you're a big Yankee fan. I am, I am. As we're recording today, they lost two out of three of the Orioles over the weekend. <laughs> John Carlson went on the disabled list. And I see a lot of Yankee fans are panicking. Would you be panicking? I know. Uh, funny enough, I did panic a little bit, but then I'm having, <laughs> like, this is the first week of baseball. And yeah. I know judges come out saying, like, every game's important. But, like, honest to God, like, it's the first week. So we have to put, like, the brakes on the wary scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yankee fans, calm down, please. <laughs> there are 162 games in this season. You've won, you're one and two. I mean, you got plenty yeah. of time. <laughs> yes. Last year, I think they even lost the series to the Orioles the first week of the year, and they still won 100 games. Yeah, well, you know. Well, Yankees are Yankees. Love them to death, but we'll see what happens this uh, this season. Yeah, I ho- I'm actually a big Gardner fan this year because he's on my fantasy teams. I'm hoping mm. now he will get, keep his playing time with Stan and Hurt, and hopefully he'll start hitting. Yes, I'm hoping to. All right, Sam, before you go, I want everybody to know how to follow on social media and some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, um, I'm at S-D-E-R-O-S-6 on, or 5 on Twitter. I do this every single time. It's S-D-E-R-O-S-5 because this is my life and I'm losing my mind. Um, but, yeah, I'm on there. I retweet a bunch of pop culture and uh, lovely Yankee stuff as well as Jaguars and Gritty. I love Gritty from the Flyers. How can you not love Gritty? <laughs> I have to throw that in for a little, uh, you know, inside joke between you and I. Yeah, I love I love the Gritty. I saw something on ESPN the magazine on him recently, just the whole origin of Gritty. It was so funny. Oh my god. It's so dark. Like yeah. I mean it fits. They yeah. do such a good job with him. Yeah. Sam, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right, and that's gonna do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest Patrick Schmidt for coming by to take talk all about college hoops, recap the Elite Eight, set up the final four, make some interesting picks for the final weekend of the college basketball season. Our legal correspondent, Phil Fryer, for coming by to break down what the crazy as the Mark Craig article means for baseball labor relations going forward and a little bit of news on the AAF, what that was going on. And our entertainment correspondent, Sandra Rosa, for stopping by to talk a little trailers, give us a little levity after that very heavy strike labor negotiation talk in the middle of the podcast. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including a look at how the Yankees team should be just fine without Harper and Machado, granted, I know they have some injury issues. I know they have downstand. Andahar is also injured, but I still think they'll be okay. Check out why on on the blog, justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher. Take your pick. Look for Just and the Suffering at any of those locations. It's all there. All the episodes are there. Feel free to subscribe. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well. It'll help make the show even better going forward. You also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with hashtag the belt if you made it to the end of this week's show. Next week, we will recap the final four. We're going to dive all into the end of the college basketball season. We'll have a new champion, discuss what that means, look ahead a little bit to next season. The Masters is coming up. I'm going to have a golf guest coming on. We're going to talk about that. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Yankees and see where they are at this point. 
see what's going on with the injury situation with the Bombers. Hopefully they'll get their act together. If not, we'll see. Until then, I'll be a better week than Duke fans. Yeah.